The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. We're going to continue in our worship with the reading of the word, and our passage today is Acts 6, verses 8 through the end of the chapter. Um, before I read that, I'm just going to give you guys a fun little etymology. The word, amen. How many of you actually know what that means? Not a lot of hands. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you know. If you know me at all, I love Hebrew. I'm obsessed with it. And that word is actually from the Hebrew word amet, which means truth. And I've been asking you guys to say amen after I read the passage, and I'm going to continue to do so. And that is your opportunity to affirm that what I've said, that you believe it is truth. So I'm going to read this passage, and then at the end, I'm going to ask you to say amen if you believe it. All right. Now, Stephen a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. If you're visiting today, it's good to have you here. We've been in a long series in the book of Acts. It'll be even longer because we're only in chapter six. <laughs> There's a lot to come. <laughs> but it's been good. We're thinking about how this first church started and why it started uh, and what happened as it started to grow and expand. This morning, we just sang this song, and there's this line. Uh, did we in our own strength confide our battle would be losing? This is common language, I think. Well, it's not common language, but it's a common idea. Have you ever wondered what people really truly mean when they say things like, don't rely on your own strength. Instead, rely on the power of the Spirit. Rely on the power of God. Today, I want to embrace a deep and concrete understanding of what it means to rely on the power of God. 
I think it's weird. We look at God and we're a little bit jealous. I kind of wish I had that kind of power. That would make things pretty awesome. And I think it's even weirder that God says back, you know, you kind of do. I have given you my spirit. I've poured out my spirit upon you. And I have empowered you with divine power. And then we're like, well, I don't know if I feel very powerful. I can't solve this relationship problem with my friend or my spouse or my parents. My kids seem to despise me every time that I try to teach them anything virtuous. They get all upset with me and tell me I'm a bad parent. My bosses are constantly freaking out at work. They're either threatening me or they're making promises that they can't ever deliver on. I live in this world and I don't feel like I have a whole lot of power. I kind of have to go with the flow and hope for the best. We come back to that idea. What is the source of our power? Where does strength come from? If you're like me, you hear that in the room where Christians gather and they say, not on our strength, but on God's. And you say, okay. Apparently we're all agreeing with that idea, but I'm the guy who's sitting there saying, what the heck does that even mean? What does that actually concretely look like? So that's where I want to go today. I want to talk about that. I think this episode is really cool. We're opening today the story of Stephen and verses 6, 8 through 8, chapter 8, verse 3 are, are kind of one encompassing story of Stephen. This is the same guy that we read about last week and he was commissioned by, by Peter to be in charge of caring for the widows. That was his job. So we looked at the language of service and the idea of being a deacon. He was appointed with seven people, and that was his role. So this is the story about that guy. But in the passage we open up today, it's the beginning, I think, of a three-part story. Today's scene is going to be a trial. He'll be tried. The next scene is going to be his testimony. He's going to teach. He's going to preach. And then the last one is going to be his termination. They're going to kill him for what he's doing and what he starts today. So this opening scene is pretty critical. It's what set the wheels in motion that will ultimately lead to his murder. Today, then, more or less is the trial. So if you're there, good. If you're not, feel free to open up to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And then we're going to think carefully about how this guy, Stephen, stays strong, stays true to himself, even in the moment of great threat or great pain. We see a guy who's operating with a kind of strength that the people around him, looking at him, say, this is different. This is very, very different than the way we see people generally living, okay? All right, verse 8. I want to make a point about verse 8. That's kind of a side note, but not really. I know that's super clear for you. (laughs) Verse 8, he says this. Now Stephen, he was full of grace and power. He was performing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Filled with great power and grace. He's a gift to people. He has the power of God. Notice this. What was Peter commissioned to do in the scene just prior, last week? Was he commissioned to teach? 
to preach, to be an evangelist? No. He was strictly, very specifically commissioned to do the collection that would help to support the widows, and we've identified him in church history as one of the first deacons. Well, what the heck is a deacon doing teaching or standing up in front of people and carrying on that part of the ministry? I thought we all had our roles. I want to say this about the example of Stephen. There is a lot of self-disqualifying that goes on in the church today. People see themselves in a certain way and they assume things like this. Well, I'm a teacher, which means that I don't paint and I don't cook or clean or do things like that. My gifting is different. I think more often that's, well, I cook and I'm a painter and I'm a good giver, which means that I do not teach. God would never want me, somebody like me, to pass down the faith that I've been given. That's for people who are qualified. That's for people who are spiritually gifted in teaching. I would say this, the New Testament's picture of church life together is one that holds the whole ministry in common. So while we do have spiritual giftings, if I'm gifted as a pastor, that doesn't mean I don't pick up trash in the parking lot because we have deacons to do that. Likewise, Stephen, as a deacon, doesn't say, well, I'm not going to stand up and teach what I know because that's not my job. He says, part of being the church in the world is to proclaim the truth of God. And if I belong to the church, then I'm part of that. Sure, within a community, it is wise to identify your spiritual giftings and to use those. But if your spiritual gifting ever causes you to disconnect from the life of the body, You've got a serious problem. You've misinterpreted the point of spiritual giftings, okay? So it's a little bit of a side note, but Stephen's example, and we'll see it better even next week when he stands up to deliver a sermon. I've been around the church long enough to know there's this constant conversation, and I hear it all the time. Well, I'm not going to teach because I'm not gifted. I'm not going to teach because that's not my job. And it's like, I've, I've actually known people who've been following Jesus for decades and still don't see in themselves the ability to pass down what they've been given. That is a distorted picture of Christianity. God empowers every believer. God pours his spirit on every believer. We talk differently. We think differently. Some have different levels of education, and yet you have the truth, and you can speak it and live it. All right. My, uh, my friend Chuck says it this way, our call... The call to each and every one of us is to be the body of Christ to the body and to be the body of Christ to the world. It's both, and that's our collective call. So we'll leave it there. Here we go. Stephen, the servant to the widows, the nuts and bolts guy who takes up this important collection he obviously also sees it as his responsibility and calling to teach people what he knows when the time comes. And here's the point I'm going to go to next. He does so without fear. Nobody's calling him angelic looking because he's sitting in the corner scared. Okay? He does so without fear. This kind of faithfulness to God it makes life comfortable and easy and really hashtag blessed, doesn't it? 
right? It's going to make his life awesome to be faithful to God this way. I don't think it actually is. Let's read. You'll see what I mean. Verse 9. Some men from the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, as well as from Cilicia, the province of Asia, they stood up and they argued with Stephen. They fought with him. Yet they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say this, we have heard this man speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 12, they incited, they instigated, they incited the people, or they stirred up the people. Notice, the people, and then the big boys, the people, the elders, the experts, they stirred them all up. Luke's picture here, this is a really interesting picture. Today could be a real game changer, I think, for many of us. This thought that I want to develop for the rest of the time is one that is continuously changing my own life. Luke is contrasting two different ways of existing, two ways of life. There's this group, and we're going to look at how they behave, and then there's this Stephen who is acting and behaving very, very differently. And I think Luke wants us to see the difference of power. One is believed by all to be extremely powerful. That would be the big group of experts and leaders. The lone guy is not assumed to be very powerful. And yet we'll see what happens. Some of these guys, here's the big difference. Some of them are very poorly differentiated. Stephen is very well self-differentiated. Some of them are acting like viruses. Stephen is acting like a cell. Right? And you're saying, viruses, cells, differentiation. Come on, pastor. You know, those words aren't even in the Bible. What are you talking about? I say, there's no English words in the Bible, okay? Not the original Bible, so just calm down. Notice how this crowd operates. I would call this the behavior, I'll say it again, of poorly differentiated or virus types. Here comes Stephen. He's saying and doing things they don't understand. Because they don't understand them, they quickly hate them. And then they cannot be okay unless they can control it unless it ends immediately. So what do poorly differentiated people do? When they're acting like viruses, and they're in a scenario where there's somebody who's come in and started to raise fear for them. Uh-oh, he's doing and saying things we don't get. What's the MO of this kind of person? Well, there's three things right in our passage. Luke says, they instigated, or it, this is, they secretly persuaded. In the Greek, it's very strong. It's the idea of setting somebody up falsely so that they can be tarnished. The idea of setting somebody up, presenting, hey, did you hear about Joe? Yeah, I heard about, and you set them up before people in a fraudulent manner, a deceitful manner. So that's the first thing that they do. Then, 
They stir the people up, that inciting. It's sort of a triangulating. Oh, did you hear? Oh, yeah, I heard. Did you hear about that? It's that sort of gossipy, rumory, prayer chain type stuff, you know? It's that stuff that is just spreading news and getting people nervous and worried. And then the next verse says that they produced marturas sudes. They produced false witnesses. That word marturas leads to martyr. That's our word, martyr, and it means to witness, to bear witness. Stephen is actually, in church history, the first martyr, the first witness to the power of Christ. But here, they produce, they go find people, and they say, hey, say this. They actually intentionally try to get false witnesses to give a false testimony about Stephen. Very interesting. What is the sense that you get from this kind of behavior? You can sort of feel it. Perhaps you've experienced being a part of a community where this kind of stuff is going on. If it is, what, is the, what are the things you recognize here? To say that Stephen's wisdom and spirit are just so dangerous, right, that they have to protect the crowds from Stephen, it would just be untrue. He is literally healing people left and right. So they're afraid of him, but why? It's not because he's hurting people. He's healing people. Their problem is that Stephen's wisdom and spirit are solid, rock solid. He's relying on what he knows to be true. The end of that same hymn we just sang, his truth to triumph through us. Stephen is operating on what he knows is absolutely true. And the opposition's argument is hollow. It doesn't work against him. They aren't getting their way. The power they thought they had is turning out to be a lot weaker than they expected. And so they have a choice. They can either learn from Stephen and change, or they can power up in the ways they know how to. We just mentioned them, inciting, instigating, false witness. They can power up and try to shut him down or move him out. They did this with Jesus, didn't they? Well, they choose the power up method. It's not unlike Moses' opposers, yes? Don't you see a little Moses here? Moses rolls into the scene. He knows who he is. He knows what God has called him to do. And Pharaoh's got all kinds of magicians and experts and blah, blah, blah. Moses just stands strong. He says what he says. Elijah, think of Elijah. His opposers bringing out hundreds of false prophets. And there's Elijah standing there. Powerhouse. We've got all the geniuses of the planet surrounding him, and he's just like, I am who I am. I know who God is. You guys do your worst. I'm not afraid. John the Baptist, was he not like that? He's got all kinds of guys come. What are you doing? Who do you think you are? You're baptized. And he's like, I know who I am. I know what I believe, and I'm living out of what is true. All of your fear and anxiety is not dragging me down. Don't you see it in Jesus too? Don't you see it here in Stephen? That's awesome. The virus must draw its power from another source, another physical source, another person. The Christian draws its power 
its power. Are Christians in it? I don't think His or her power, all right? The Christian draws his or her power from the truth of God revealed in the gospel. Can you just hear them? I can hear them like this, trying to triangulate. I'll put it in some modern terminology. This is how we do it today. You can hear them coming up. You know, Stephen's been preaching. And he's doing things they don't really know. They don't really like it. They say, man, we're just really concerned about this Stephen guy. You know, have you heard about him? Oh, yeah. Man, if you guys could just be praying about him, that'd be really good. We don't want to talk too openly right now about what Stephen is doing, you know, because of our holiness, our righteousness. But Stephen and his ministry team, they need prayer for reals because I've, I've actually heard that their teaching isn't quite biblical. I heard that. It's not biblical. Well, what do you mean it's not biblical? Well, it's kind of hard. Just be praying. I don't want to get into it right now. And I don't want to, you know, Stephen is just, well, let's just be praying for him, you know. That's the way that we stir up. We use righteous sounding language to create suspicions and fears and anxieties. And when we feel unsettled ourselves, if we're living virus-like, we don't like that. The power of God's not good enough. We need other people to agree. So we say, hey, yeah, do you agree he's a bad guy? Well, why should I think he's a bad guy? It doesn't really matter. Just think, okay, I'll think, yeah. Pretty soon, that spreads. People are all like, I don't know what he really said, but I am also afraid and worried right now for some reason. I thought he was healing, but now you've helped me see something sinister is afoot. So in suspicion, instigating, using fraudulent and underhanded manipulative actions to cast a shadow, inciting, stirring up. The leaders and, Luke tells us, the people at large. It's interesting, isn't it? Thus far, we have seen a crowd that's quite favorable. Now the crowd is starting to turn even. All right, that's the, that's the first crowd, the opposition virus-like crowd. Now, what is the sense that we get from Stephen's behavior? We can sort of feel and see, unfortunately, perhaps, it's, it's kind of familiar to us, the way that these guys are operating. Let's think about where Stephen is at. We'll pick it up again then in verse 12, the last half of that verse. Verse 12, at the end, they seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. That's the big judging crew, the, the big leader crew, the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, well, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. We actually heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Isn't this amazing? It's just an amazing irony. They do not believe in resurrection. They do know for a fact that they murdered Jesus and he's dead, right? And now... Here's this guy, Stephen, saying Jesus is going to tear down the temple, or at least that's their accusation, and, and they're afraid. Their fear literally is contradicting their own belief that Jesus is dead and gone. <laughs> they're spun. They're living in that darkness of chaos. It doesn't even make sense. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, that's verse 15, they looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like an angel, like that of an angel. 
Remember from verse 10, he said, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. What is the sense that you get from Stephen's behavior? You see a face that's glowing like an angel. We say, oh, I've got to figure out how to glow. No, it's not that. We're not trying to glow. It is an odd moment, though. I mean, you've got commentators, ancient commentators, trying to describe what he looks like. It's not like they live in a world where there's a lot of angels walking around. So what are they comparing it to? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Wish I could answer that for you. I don't know quite what's going on. Something reminded Luke or Peter, or whoever saw Stephen at this moment, Something reminded them of what they had likely heard about the angelic presence. Remember, they're not engaging with them, and yet there's this sense that somebody who's directly connected to God is very different than the, the basic runaround of the world. And Stephen, though he wasn't an angel, reminded them of that divine kind of presence. It seems to me that Stephen is sure of who he is, what he's about, and there is no amount of threat or condemnation or judgment or fear or anxiety that will change him. Stephen knows where he ends and where other people begin. He does not have to take on their anger and their judgment for him to be okay. Okay? He truly believes and lives the gospel, and this differentiates him from others in a positive way because it is the core of his life. Who he is, if you think of him like a cell, the nucleus is the gospel and the spirit of God. This is what matters the most. This is what I live out of. I live out of grace, not out of fear. The part of him that drives him to say and do what he does is the gospel. Perhaps what we are meant to understand is that there was a kind of light, says Tom Wright. A kind of light perhaps illuminating Stephen from the inside. A kind of serenity, humble and not pretentious, but confident and assured. In the middle of arguments and controversies and false accusations and now a serious capital charge at the highest court, this capital punishment charge. In the midst of all of this, Stephen found himself standing at the overlap of heaven and earth, which is what the temple was supposed to be. But here Stephen stands in that overlapping place. The speech he was about to make and the death that he was about to suffer they were just the final stages in his own traveling, his journey, uh, his journey of living as a witness to the risen Jesus, okay? He's standing with this kind of presence, and it's absolutely solid and strong, and it makes people who are poorly differentiated very nervous, and he's living as a witness. He is living in a way where God's truth is triumphing through him. The well-differentiated person in Christian terms, then, is the one who stands in the overlap 
between heaven and earth. It's like you are living in heaven. You think about, okay, how am I going to be living in heaven? You think about that and you say, I'm going to live that way right now. I do it here on earth. How will you live in heaven? Let's think about that. I'm fairly confident that when we live in heaven, we will live in a way that's very similar to the way we see Jesus living. I think we could probably agree with that. How is that going to be then? When I'm in heaven, if I'm going to live the way Jesus lives, I'm going to be very humble. I'm not going to be fake in the least in heaven. I'll probably be naked, quite frankly. I mean, I don't know how it's going to be, but that's how it all started. I'm not going to be fake. I'm not going to be hidden. I'll be honest and open. I'm going to be humble in heaven. I'm going to be pretty confident in heaven. I doubt that when I'm in heaven, I'm going to be, oh man, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to get nervous or anxious. I'm not going to be afraid in heaven. Okay? Keep going. Think, meditate on this for a week. How will I behave when I'm in heaven? What will worry me? What's going to cause me to feel terrified? And if you say, well, geez, in heaven, I'll be in the presence of God and there'll be no more things to worry about. I think that's what we are striving to live like right now. Nothing to fear. I know that I'm okay with God. I'm right with God. I'm at peace with God. There is no actual danger. There's this video. It's six minutes and 44 seconds long. I'll put it on our church's uh, Facebook group page right after service today. It's awesome. I was going to show it, but it's just, it's too long to show on a Sunday morning. It is called, I don't remember what it's called, something like the self-differentiated leader. All right. And it's really good. I, want, I would absolutely love for you to watch it. If you don't do Facebook, just hit me up with an email and I'll send you the link or just go to YouTube and look it up. In it, it's real basic uh, it's not even animation. It's a guy drawn on white paper with a marker, stick figures. It's good. I've drawn a few pictures for us here in a second. But he says, look at cell biology, and you see a picture of how people live, either like cells or like viruses. All right? and, he, and he walks through the way that a leader, now that's part of the reason I didn't show it. It's specifically aimed at leaders, but it's good for every single one of us. So watch it. And he walks through this idea of life as a cell where you have a membrane and a nucleus, a core operating principle, you know who you are, and as a virus where you don't and you're just feeding off of others. I'd like to walk through it with you in our own way without showing the video with my, um, I'm a very, very, very gifted artist, which you can see right now. Colleen, let's prove it. There it is. Look at that. All right. You've got the cell. The cell has a membrane. It, it, if you're a brain cell or a heart cell or a skin cell, you might have different kinds of operating procedures, which is your mitochondria. Okay? So what you do is, can be all kinds of different things in a human body, but cells are always together, working together, but they're different than one another. They're separated by the membrane. Now, let's go to the virus. 
The virus has no nucleus, and it needs to feed off the cell. And that's what they look like. It's filled with a nucleic sort of acid. Now, let's see how this works. The virus, go to the next slide, and we'll see that the virus enters the cell, all right? It's going to break through the cell's membrane, and once the virus gets into the cell, it starts releasing that nucleic acid. Then it goes to where the virus overwhelms the cell, and the nucleic acid is going for one place only, and that's the nucleus, the part of the cell that governs it. Once the virus has infiltrated the nucleus, now that nucleus, if it was thinking, I'm supposed to be heart tissue, now it says, I'm supposed to produce more viruses. And now that same cell, the nucleus stops producing what it used to, and it starts reproducing viruses until the cell is so packed full of many viruses that it bursts and sends more viruses out into the body system. And you can imagine what that does. I mean, we've all had the flu and different viruses. Those viruses continue to corrupt the entire body. It's amazing. Let's go to slide the next one. Here we go. Stephen, he was self-differentiated like a cell. He was not a virus. This helped him to live alongside other people with a non-anxious presence. Stephen could walk into a place filled with fearful and anxious people and stand strong in who he was and what he was about. Now, you could misinterpret this forward, there we go. Being self-differentiated is not about, I want to clarify this, it's not about faking that you're happy when you're not. This happens a lot. We have this idea that, man, if I'm going to give glory to God, I can't be sad. I have to always be happy. That's called lying. And lying doesn't give glory to God. It just doesn't. So this is not a call to just pretend everything's okay. That's not what Stephen is doing, is he? He's not standing there just faking things. Oh, you guys are mad, but not good old me. I think he's probably feeling all of the weight of the moment. Let's go to the next one. The non-anxious presence is a way of living like Jesus. We're fully engaged, but not pretending. We're seeing and experiencing the pain we're not hiding or looking away from it, but we don't fight fire with fire. We don't respond to fear with even more fear because we don't need to, because we're eternally okay. We're good in God. The gospel is not illegitimate. It's real. Let's go to the last one. By refusing to join others in their anxiety and fear, I won't do it. I'm not joining you with your anxiety. Then we are witnessing. We're bearing witness to the truth of Jesus. I hear people often say, oh man, I'm afraid of witnessing. I'm afraid of witnessing. I don't want, I don't know that. Maybe part of it is just learning to live in a fearless, confident way in Jesus. Stephen was bearing witness as he simply lived in the confident truth of God. Here's a couple ways the Bible puts it. Be angry, but don't sin. You know? You can be fully engaged. 
You can be rocking it. You can be intense. But don't shift over into the way that the world solves problems. Grieve. Don't, don't say, oh man, I lost a loved one, but it's okay, it's okay. I'm just happy about it. No. We grieve. We grieve real loss. But not as those who have no hope. In thinking, be mature. Have no anxiety about anything. This is the language. God gives us this kind of language as sort of marching orders to say, look, you live this way because of who I am and what I've done. You're not trying, you don't need to try to fix everything because it is finished. I have come and paid that ultimate price. I am working my goodness and virtue and love and grace into the world through you. But you don't have to be anxious when you run into the places of this world where that love and goodness and truth have not yet become full. I'm doing that. Be faithful to me. Stay with me. All right, that's it for my slides, and I have two examples to close. As I think about this, you think I'll give you two examples, but think about how it would register in your own life, in your own Christian life, in the way that you bear witness to others. Here's one. Your daughter, Annabelle, she comes home from school on a Friday to a clean living room. You look away for four minutes and three seconds, and then you turn back, and there's her coat, shoes, socks, a Lego spaceship, a pile of colored pencils, and a banana peel strewn all around the room. And you offer a reasonable instruction. Hey, Annabelle, uh, could you pick this stuff up? She replies, you're the worst mom! That's unfair! Oh! You know, it's just, the, it's just hell you've brought into your living room to ask her to pick up the garbage she left all over the place, right? Now, what do you do? Do you meet her in her anger and get even more angry yourself, powering up on her? I can't believe you would say that to me! I'm your mother! You should... You know, and then that's what you do. You get fired up, and she cowers and shakes and puts the stuff away, and we say, okay, good, I won. Yeah, go ahead. See how good that wins. Perhaps you take a different route. You remind yourself, I don't care who says it. I'm not the worst mom in God's eyes. He actually chose me to be her mom. And he is not done. I am his beloved daughter. I am trying to love and raise my kids, and I know that I'm okay. I am forgiven, and I'm cared for by God. Even if I have made mistakes in my mothering, it doesn't condemn me. Vicious words do hurt deeply but they don't cause me to enter the same place of anxiety and fear and anger that I see in my daughter right now. I feel bad for where she's at, and I will try to help her, but I'm not taking on that attitude, and I'm not going to try to overpower her with more fear and anger, etc. This is the strong, self-differentiated Christian parent. All right? I think that's a good picture. Here's another one. 
You're on your lunch break. You're having a sandwich. You're thinking about your love for God and his creation. Maybe you're thinking about your family, your neighbors, your friends. You're remembering that you're okay. You're remembering the gospel. Your salvation, your eternal life in Christ is secured. There you are. And then a colleague enters and sits down with you with a furled brow. Hey, Ben, you hear about the new CFO they hired? Oh, gosh. I've heard that some people are really concerned about this decision, and some are really worried about where our business is headed. What do you say? What? You heard that others are concerned and worried about our future? (gasps) Oh, no. Now I am concerned and worried about our future, too. Sorry, bro. I've got to leave my sandwich. I've got to go talk to some other people, and we've got to get lots and lots of other people worried about it. Put it on the prayer chain. Let's go. I could, go that, I could do that, or I could bear witness for Jesus Christ in the moment and say, yeah, I heard about the new CFO too. I'm not sure what to say or think about it. That's not really my area of expertise, quite frankly, but I do know this. I like working with you, and I'm thinking we'll be okay, however this plays out. Boom, drop the mic. What is, what is, is that not reassuring, loving, strengthening your coworker, helping them to step outside of the fray and the chaos that's become so attractive to our world? We love it. We love the darkness and the chaos. Just look at TV shows. It's just the way it is. But you stand with wisdom and the spirit of God and bear witness to the risen Christ and say, Yeah, homie, don't play that game. I'm not going into that nonsense world. We have nothing to be afraid of. Is that not one of the most frequently stated comments from God or his messengers? Do not be afraid. I am with you. One brings faith and hope and love into the world like Jesus did. The other brings fear and hate and loathing. And it brings it into the world just like Satan did. One fills the soul with life. One fills the soul with bad nucleic acid, which overrides your main motivators for living. And soon you become a sick virus who's infecting whole crowds, secretly persuading people that others are bad, stirring up controversies against men and women who are actually loving you, Is Stephen not loving them? And here they are stirring this up to tarnish him and tear him down, ultimately to kill him. And there I think we've come full circle. I believe that living as a self-differentiated Christian is the modern way of talking about being empowered by the Spirit. You set your mind on things above. You live out of grace, not fear. That means... That means you live out of the place that says every moment God gives me is grace. It is a gift. My kid is screaming at me. Living out of fear says, uh-oh, 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 uh-oh. Living out of grace says this moment is a gift. It's a moment where I can love my child and I can practice what it means to live with the confident love of God that is not shaken by the darkness of this world. If you start to live in a way that says all is grace, 
then you're, you let go of the desire to control everything, and instead you embrace the desire to learn. Now you've become a disciple, a metesis, a learner. It's the call of the Christian to become self-differentiated, living out of grace, not living out of fear. You make Jesus, this is, I know it sounds cliche, but Jesus becomes central. You hear Jesus say every day to you, and this is where we'll leave it. He says, I made it. It is finished. You are okay. You are okay. And you're going to learn to live if you stay close to me. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Let's pray. Jesus, as, as we think about our lives in this world, as I think about my own life, it is, I think it would be untruthful for me to say that the number one motivator that has been driving me throughout my lifetime was love and trust in you. I know that I can say the number one motivator for basically everything I've ever done has been fear. I don't want to fail. I don't want to die. I don't want to lose something important. I don't want to feel pain. On and on and on it goes. You know, Jesus, my own story is one of learning to repent from that, but it is not easy. And I suspect that I'm not speaking in isolation. So I ask that through your Holy Spirit and all of your transforming power, that you would help us to repent of the ways of thinking and behaving with one another that embrace fear and loathing and anger. Help us to instead embrace the confident, hopeful attitude we see in you. Help us to live out of grace. Help us to parent our children that way. Patient, strong, directive, and kind. Oh, we need you so much. It is unbelievable how much we need you. So I ask that you would continue to be with us Continue to lead us. And on behalf of the whole church and everybody who's involved here, I say we are going to follow you each and every day. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.